Good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. We, as has been mentioned already, we are returning back to our study of Ephesians, uh, specifically the name of our series, again, has been mentioned, The Church, A Mystery Revealed. We see in Ephesians that Paul is revealing a mystery, the mystery of the church that was not revealed in the Old Testament, and we see it here in the New Testament, and specifically we see uh, this being revealed in Ephesians, starting in Ephesians chapter 1. But our study this morning is in Ephesians chapter 2. So let me pray for us. Let me pray for us, and then we will read the passage, and we'll get started in our exposition of Ephesians chapter 2. Our Heavenly Father, we again come to you and praise you that we could come and gather here today. Father, as has been mentioned already, Lord, I pray that you would electrify this sermon and that that power would go into the lightning rod of these hearers. The Holy Spirit would be glorified, or that is, the Holy Spirit would glorify you in the preaching of your word. Father, we pray that Christ would be held high and exalted, even here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read, starting in verse 11, to give us context as we catch back up on our study here. This morning, I've been off for the last couple of weeks. I also preached the sermon on Christmas, so it's been three full weeks since we've been in Ephesians. So let me let me give you some context this morning, starting in verse 11. That'd be Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fit together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also, having been built together, into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Well, during World War II... There was a young Japanese soldier named Hiru Anoda. He was a second lieutenant who was placed in combat in the Philippines during the campaign of 1944 and 1945. Like many Japanese soldiers, he vowed never to surrender alive. When he left home, his mother even gifted him a dagger to commit suicide in the event that he was captured alive. Now, if you ask most students of history, when the Second World War ended, they would say that it ended in 1945. Therefore, most would believe the war ended for Hiru Anoda on September 2, 1945, when the Japanese Emperor Hirohito signed the Japanese Instrument of Surrender on board the USS Missouri. 
We do know that after surrender, Japan went through a massive trans transformation in the post-war years. They transitioned from a people bent on war to a peace-loving people. Now, we may think that this change came immediately when they surrendered to the Allies. But at the end of the war, there was massive damage to Japan's infrastructure, and there was severe famine, which complicated the Allied efforts to bring the help to these Japanese people. Most do not know that many Japanese military prisoners were not able to return to home until much later after the war. As late as April 1949, China still held more than 60,000 Japanese war prisoners. Surprisingly, some of these were not repatriated until the late 1950s. As I said earlier, Onoda, the second lieutenant in the Philippines, was dropped there to do a reconnaissance and carry out guerrilla warfare, and he was ordered to never surrender under any circumstances. Almost immediately after he was dropped, and on February 28, 1945, the U.S. military, along with the Philippine Commonwealth forces, quickly captured the island and overwhelmed the forces or the Japanese forces stationed there. This is where it becomes interesting. All but Anoda and three others died or surrendered. So there was Anoda and three others, four. These four men remained and carried out guerrilla activities and even engaged in several shootouts with Filipino police. Eventually, Anoda's three companions either died or walked away from him, but he continued to fight, even refusing to give up. He gave refusing to give up at any cost. He didn't know that the Japanese had surrendered to the Allies, which ultimately led to an era of amazing peace and prosperity for Japan. Many, many attempts were actually made to get him to surrender, but he would not do so until his commanding officer came to him. He made a promise in 1944. Whatever happens, this is what his commanding officer said, whatever happens will come back. Anoda finally surrendered on March 9th, 1974. Astonishingly, he surrendered over 30 years after he was placed on the island and nearly 30 years after the full surrender of the Japanese forces. You see, he couldn't understand that peace had come to his people. He didn't know. Despite the peace and prosperity his people enjoyed back in Japan, Anoda remained at war for the entire 30 years. You know, I wonder if, if we as Christians realize that the war has ended for us. That at the cross, that Christ has brought peace. If we fully un if, if, I wonder if we fully understand what it means to be in Christ. Now, I don't mean the war, meaning the Second World War, or any other physical war. I mean our war with our fellow man and with God. Before we were Christians, we were at war with others, and we were at war with God. There was enmity between man and man, and between God and man. But God, ought to, or Christ at the cross, has brought us peace. He has brought us true peace with man and with God. Yet, at times, we still fight, right? Many times, we fight about the silliest things. We fight about the color of the carpet, and if we don't have carpet, then we argue whether we should have carpet. It doesn't matter, we choose to fight. I know that you can think of a hundred little things that we argue about. Yet Paul says that in Christ we have peace. Peace with one another and peace with our Maker. Now don't get me wrong. For as long as we are in this world, we will be involved in a spiritual battle. Paul was actually imprisoned as he wrote this epistle for preaching the gospel. But this spiritual battle must be fought, get this, with spiritual weapons. This spiritual battle must be fought with spiritual weapons, not with fleshly weapons. Paul describes these spiritual weapons in Ephesians 6. In that chapter, he tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Beloved, our battle is not against one another in the flesh. It's a spiritual battle. As Christians, we're involved in a great spiritual struggle. Many times, as we well know, this spiritual struggle spills over into our present world, just like Paul's imprisonment. But in Christ, we have been given peace and unity. I wonder 
if we fully understand the peace that we've been given in Christ. Beloved, this is Paul's theme in Ephesians chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul told the church at Ephesus that they were once dead in their sins or trespasses and sins. But God miraculously intervened on our behalf by sending His Son, the Lord Jesus, to die on a cross. And according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. We didn't deserve it, yet He did so. And not only have we been saved by His grace, but we have been raised up and seated with Him in the heavenlies. A wonderful truth. A wonderful and amazing truth that if we live according to this truth, it completely changes everything. Now, the truth of our salvation has some incredibly profound implications for us. In verse 10, Paul told the Ephesians that not only has God saved us by His grace through faith, but we are His workmanship. We, are, we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we may walk in them. That's chapter 2, verse 10. And starting in verse 11, Paul begins to lay out the implications of that truth. First, the Gentiles, who were separated from Christ and excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants and promises, who had no hope in this world, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Beloved, that's most of me and you, right? There's not many of us in here that have Jewish heritage. Most of us are sitting here as Gentiles because of what Christ has done on the cross. He is, our, he is our peace, and He has broke down the barrier between us and the Jewish people who had been given the promises of God. And as such, the Jews and Gentiles were brought together and made into a new man, a new creation. We have both been placed into the body of Christ and who has given us peace, who has broke down that wall, those dividing walls. Beloved, this points to the new creation which is to come. This also indicates that the church must be different from the world around us. The church should reflect the world to come. Have you thought about that? When somebody walks into this meeting, when someone walks into this meeting, they should say to themselves, this is different. This is not what I see in the world. This is not how it looks in the world. They should see people who normally wouldn't be together in the world. They should see them together. I remember many years ago when I became a Christian, I was struck that I genuinely liked people whom I never wanted to be with before Christ. Let that sink again for a moment. People that I didn't, I wouldn't have wanted to be with, I wanted to be with them. I genuinely wanted to be with them and I loved them. I was young and immature in the face, and I remember saying to other Christians, I would never have been friends with this person outside of Christ. Now, that wasn't the most kind thing to say. might have been somewhat rude to say. But I was amazed by what Christ had done in my heart and what Christ was doing in the church. We shouldn't then recognize our brothers and sisters according to the flesh. We are a new creation. We should recognize everyone spiritually as a brother or sister in Christ. Racism in any form should never be named among us. And we should never, ever look down upon anyone for their status in this world. We don't see things according to fleshly eyes. We see things according to spiritual eyes. Beloved, what Paul is saying here is that the gospel unifies us. We are unified at the cross. We have all been created in the image of God, and it is His image that binds us together. You know, it's funny, but it's actually sad. Sometimes we laugh at things that are sad, unfortunately, but the world contradicts itself by calling for the end of racism, right? We, we hear it all the time, the ra- races, and, and, and that's, a, that's a huge subject, right? I think I even heard somebody talk about a class about races, the races, this morning. Yet, yet the, the teaching is that of, 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 of evolution that's taught in schools gives rise to racism. 
The idea that, that man evolved from molecules to higher life forms gives rise to, to racism because that means that we're at different levels, potentially. Listen to this by Ken Ham. says this, Did you know that in the 1920s in America, a major biology textbook used in public schools was a civic biology by Hunter? And it stated the following, At the present time, this is in the 20s, there exists upon the earth five races. The highest type of all, the Caucasians, represented by the civilized white inhabitants of Europe and America. The highest type of all are the Caucasians. No wonder the late Stephen Jay Gould, this is again this article by Ken Ham, says this. So Stephen Jay Gould is a famed evolutionist at Harvard University. He said this in 1977. Biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1859, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. Beloved, despite what you may hear, true Christian theology is absolutely antithetical to racism. Because true theology teaches that all mankind has been made in the image of God. We are separated and are at enmity with other because of sin. Not because of our skin color. Not because of the shape of our, our face or our eyes or, or whatever may separate us. We are at enmity with others because of our sin. We can't lose the sight of the fact that Christ has accomplished reconciliation at the cross. And the truth is, this is even greater, the truth is, We've been reconciled not only with our fellow man, but we've been reconciled with our Maker, our Creator. As Christians, then, we can lay down our fleshly weapons of war against one another and against God because God has made peace for us at the cross. And, beloved, this has massive, massive implications, especially in the culture that we currently live in. Because I'm telling you, most people don't get this. Most people, most people in the culture, most people that, that you read in the news, most people, journalists, the politicians, most people don't understand what I'm about to say or what I am saying. They don't understand it. They don't understand that man is made in the image of God and there's massive implications to that. Well, in this passage that we're studying this morning, Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to recognize three massive results of Christ's work on the cross. Three massive results. At the cross, number one, first result. At the cross, Jesus produced reconciliation for us. In verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says that Christ himself is our peace. Really, that's the whole point. When you are saved, He places you into His body and He gives you peace. He becomes your peace. According to verse 15, He makes us a new man, a new creation. He has abolished the enmity. That is the law of commandments. And He did this in His flesh at the cross. He died and took upon Himself the penalty for sin so that we would have peace with man and God. Then Paul writes in in verse 16, he says this, He says, and might reconcile them both in one body to God. Now the main verb here in in verse 16 is the verb to reconcile. Now this word is unique to Pauline writings, or Pauline writings that is. It is only found here and in Colossians 1.20. It means to reconcile, it means to make things right with one another. Now, in Pauline thought, or Pauline thought, I'll say that right, Pauline thought, Pauline sounds like, uh, a lady, but Pauline sounds maybe more a little bit more masculine. I don't know, but in Pauline thought, the world is out of kilter. It's out of joints. All things, all of creation, all things have been torn asunder and are out of harmony. Sin and wickedness then have caused great disharmony, and things to be need to be set right. <clears throat> now, what we have to understand is is that when in, again in Pauline thought things between God and man and all of creation are out of harmony and therefore need to be set right. What we have to understand is is that there is sin. Mankind is sin, and he's separate from his creator. 
And I can tell you that, that there cannot be peace where there is wickedness. That's what we have to understand. There cannot be peace where there is wickedness. Now listen to this sermon quote by John MacArthur. He says this, Built into wickedness is the impossibility of peace. Where you have sin, you have discord. And the reason is this, sin basically by definition is selfishness. And where there is selfishness, there can never be harmony. And where you've got, so he goes on to say, where you've got everybody looking out for themselves, you cannot have harmony. When you have everybody looking to see what they can get, no matter what it does to somebody else, you can't have harmony. And so man, as a sinner, is by nature selfish. And therefore, selfish man can never know peace. And ultimately then, the only place we can have peace is where self dies. And the only place that self can truly die is at the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. That's the reason why Paul can say this, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. Christ lives in me. In other words, it's at the Christ, at the, at the cross that is, the cross of Christ, where I am placed in Christ and crucified by faith. And it's at that point of belief that I die to self and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And when my, when my self dies, when Christ lives in me, my selfishness dies and true peace becomes a possibility. Positionally, our peace with God becomes guaranteed, right? Because of what Christ has done. And He also brings man and man together. And gives us peace between man and man and with God. You see, mankind has a need to be reconciled. Reconciled horizontally and vertically to God. Now Paul, it seems that he coined this word for reconciliation. But it I want you to understand that it not only has the idea of bringing things together, making things right, but it has the idea of complete and total reconciliation. Complete and total reconciliation. In his parallel passage in Colossians 1.20, you can turn there if you'd like, really in, in starting in verse 18, just a few pages over. Speaking of Christ, he said he is also head of the body, the church, and he, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, Again, what Paul is getting at is the idea here is the reconciliation of all things. This peace, then, is accomplished by the blood of the cross. This may remind you of Romans 8.20, where Paul writes that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God subjected it that one day it would be set free from its slavery to corruption. And ultimately, Christ has accomplished this at the cross. Though we do not see the full fruition of what He's accomplished, right? We don't see that full fruition yet. But we will. It's guaranteed because of Christ's work at the cross. Now back in Ephesians 2.16, while His focus on the, in the preceding verses has been on His reconciliation between man and man, now we must recognize that Paul's focus here in verse 16 is our reconciliation with the Father. His focus is on making all things new, including our relationships with one another, but ultimately in our relationship with the Father. And that ties back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, where he, say, where he says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. What has he done? He's made us alive in Christ. He's raised us up and seated us on the, on the throne in the heavenlies. In verse 16, notice what he says. And might reconcile them both and one body to God. Again, Christ has accomplished this reconciliation. 
he not only achieved the horizontal reconciliation from man to man, but the vertical reconciliation from man to God. He said much the same thing in Colossians 1, that he might reconcile all things to himself. Brethren, those all things include me and you. You see, we were enemies of God. And God was our enemy. Now, you may protest as you sit here. You may say, well, wait a minute. I had no idea that God was my enemy. Well, beloved, before you were a believer, God was your enemy. And if you are an unbeliever today, sitting here right now, God is still your enemy. That may not be a nice children's Sunday school lesson, but it is true nonetheless. Back in, in Colossians 1.21, you don't have to turn back there unless you've got a finger there already, but Paul speaks of your need for reconciliation. He says, and he says to the Colossians, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Look, you were formerly alienated, separate, hostile in mind. You didn't love the things of God. You hated God. You were engaged in evil deeds. You might, you might protest. Well, I'm, I was actually, I was, I was, I'm a good guy. I'm good. I'm, I'm a good girl. No, you're not. No. All your deeds are filthy rags before the Lord. All your, all your deeds are filthy rags. Before you were a believer, you were alienated from God. You were hostile to the things of God. You loved the world, and you loved the things of the world, and you were unwilling to let them go. Yet God, He intervened, unilaterally intervened, and reconciled Himself to you through the blood of the cross. If you don't know Christ today, as I said earlier, you are still alienated from God and hostile in mind. And yes, you are engaged in evil deeds. Over the past couple of weeks... I've been listening to a podcast about the early, early stages of World War II. The primary focus, as you might imagine, was on, is on the Japanese and their early Pacific campaign. It's interesting that they were so underestimated by the Allied powers prior to the war, and they were un- underestimated, frankly, because they were taken lightly because the English and the Americans couldn't imagine them capable of beating the, beating the white man. Just think about the time period. Yet in the early stages of the war, they enjoyed victory after victory. Now, one of the things that keeps coming up in this, in this podcast is the, is discussions of war atrocities. Our history books have historically taught the horrific things that the Japanese did to prisoners during World War II. And yes, many of these things are true. But what we have to understand is, unfortunately, the Allies committed atrocities as well. We just don't hear about them. You might say that we did so in response to the Japanese methods of war. But we did some things, I'm telling you, that are difficult to explain away. Here's my point. As Christians, this should come as no surprise. Right? It should come as a surprise when normal folks, quote-unquote normal folks, do evil things. The Bible clearly teaches that we all have evil lurking in us. You must realize that we are all capable of horrid evil. Beloved, before Christ, you were capable of horrific things. Atrocity after atrocity has been committed by normal people to escape suffering and difficulty. It's their story after story to ensure that they come out on the winning side. It shouldn't surprise us. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In Romans 3, it tells us that there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. Going back to my World War II analogy, listen to this. In verse 15, this is Romans 3, 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. This is talking about humankind, mankind. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their past, and the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's us before Christ. That's you and I before Christ. But Christ, let me just say it this way, the unbeliever has no reverence for God. 
there is animosity, bitterness, war, and fighting against God. But there is no peace. There is no fear. But Christ has come along and He's removed your sin. In Christ, He gives you His righteousness. Despite your evil heart, He makes you holy. He makes you unblameable. He makes you unreprovable in His sight. He imputes to you, He gives to you the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. He removes the barrier of our sin and He makes us holy and blameless before Him in love. He makes us His and He raises us up and He seats us in the heavenlies in Christ. We have been given the very power of God. The barrier between us and God is completely gone. The the curtain has been torn in two, beloved. And so, we're not only reconciled according to chapter 2 here with one another, but we are reconciled with our Creator. Christ has killed, literally killed, put to death the enmity at the cross. Look at your text. 116, the last part. By it. By it, having put to death the enmity. Here Paul is referencing the cross by it. By the cross, he has put to death the hostility. The weapons of war have been laid aside. Now there is peace. He has brought you and me together at the cross. The two made one, and he has joined us with himself. The war has ceased. We have been reconciled, and we can lay down our weapons. Those fleshly weapons. Those fleshly weapons. This brings us to the second massive Massive result of Christ's work at the cross. At the cross, Jesus presented peace to us. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. He came and He preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. Beloved, no matter who you are in Christ, who you are before Christ, that is, before He saved you, it doesn't matter who you are, you have been brought near. You have been reconciled to God, and you have been placed in the body of Christ. This is wonderful news, especially if we understand what God has accomplished in saving us. Paul's point is that Christ, the Son of God, came to earth and He lived. Then He went to the cross and He died a death which atoned for our sins, and His death reconciled us to a holy God. Now, the main verb here in in verse 17 is the, the verb to preach. After the cross, He proclaimed a message of peace. Now, you might ask yourself, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity. Now, he did, he did come, and he, he was here after the cross, and he was here amongst people, and he revealed himself to him, but there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to physically proclaim a message of peace. I would say he did this through his prophets and apostles. And I think that in context, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, we'll see that. We'll see that the, that the foundation church is the prophets and apostles with him being the chief cornerstone so he used his prophets and apostles to preach peace he still does this today through the church right now to best understand this i think we should remember paul's reason for sending this letter to ephesus he recognized their strategic importance to spread the gospel the good news of the peace that christ has brought the good news that we can be reconciled to a holy God. The good news that the captives have been set free. He wanted the church at Ephesus to know their importance in preaching this message of reconciliation. They were to preach this message of peace to those who were far away and those who were near. Beloved, the point is, we're still preaching this gospel of peace. We're still preaching it to those who are far and to those who are near. We have been given this message of reconciliation. That's Paul's main point in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, you can turn there if you like. Look in, look in verse 16. So turn to 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 16. Just read along as I, as I read, starting in verse 16, and see if you hear any similarities to our current text. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Hmm, where have we heard that? Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. Then he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. 
the old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. Now, stop right there. Paul says that as Christians, we are to recognize no one according to the flesh. We must evaluate everyone according to the Spirit. We must assess according to whether they are in Christ or not. We must not think of them, even think of, again, let me say this again. We must not even think of Christ in a human, fallible sense, but according to the Spirit. Then he, then he says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creature. We are completely different. We have been made new. The old has passed away, passed away, and new things have come. Then he says this in verse 18. Now, all these things are from God. That reconciliation, right? The fact that He's made us new. All these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is that, Paul? Look at verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against Him, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Well, what is that, Paul? That's the the message of peace. It's the gospel. So he not only saved us, but he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, the gospel, the message that we can have, that man can can have peace with God, that we can be reconciled to our Creator. We have been given this gospel of peace to preach to those who are near and to those who are far far off. You said it a different way. We are the body of Christ. We are Christ's in this world. We have been given the power of God to preach the gospel to the lost. We have been given the power of God to serve Him in this world. You might not remember, but back in Ephesians 1.23, he said that the church is the body of Christ, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now, I fully believe that Paul's point in Ephesians 1.23 is that the church is the body of Christ. But, he's, but the church is the fullness of Christ here on earth. We are the representation of Christ on earth. And so when Paul says that he preached the message of peace, he primarily has preached that message through his body, the church. Now think about that in terms of where Ephesus is, in terms of the gospel. He knew that they were strategic. He knew that he ne- they needed to be used to spread the gospel. So what he's saying is, is that you are the body of Christ, you, are, you have been given the power of God, and you are to go spread this message of peace. Beloved friends, brothers and sisters, we are his means of preaching this message of peace. We are the church. This means that Christ has given us a supernatural message. Do you understand that? He's given us a supernatural message and has supernaturally given us the ability to accomplish its work. Why do you think that when we preach the gospel to unbelievers and many of them just go, yeah, this is dumb. Why do you believe that? And you have others that, that they, you preach that same gospel to them and they just they eat it up. They're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe what you just told me. That that changes everything. It's a supernatural message. It has a supernaturally a supernatural ability to accomplish its work. You may recall in Ephesians one thirteen, Paul wrote, "In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation." having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So God has supernaturally saved you through the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and He has seated you, or He has sealed you, that is, in the Holy Spirit as a promise of His full redemption in the future. It's a supernatural work. And according to 2 Corinthians 5.20 and Ephesians 1.17, He has left you here on earth as part of the body of Christ, to make you ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see the point here? That we are ambassadors of Christ. We are His representatives on earth. We have been left here to make this appeal that to beg people on behalf of God to be reconciled to Him. And that's the message He's given us to preach. You know what that message is? It's a pretty simple one. 
you got your Bible still open to 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's this. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel. That we can have the very righteousness of God because of what Christ has done on the cross. Beloved, you have been given the very privilege of being ambassadors of Christ. If you'll just give you an analogy, I guess. You've been given the magic pixie dust. You know when Peter Pan Tinkerbell had pixie dust, right? Which gave the, the fairies and the humans ability to fly. Well, obviously pixie dust is all fantasy and has absolutely no truth in it. We love to get lost in fantasy worlds, right? I think that's what really made, you know, C.S. Lewis, if, if you read Chronicles of Narnia and, and Tolkien with The Lord of the Rings, I think that's what makes them so good, right? Their fantasy worlds were, were directly rooted in truth. And I, I've argued, beloved, that truth is much, much greater than our fantasy. That in truth, you've been given something much greater than pixie dust and much greater than any world of fantasy that man could ever create. Even the worlds of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Beloved, you've been given the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the news of a Creator who cares for us, a Creator who can make us new. He will restore us, and He will give us more than we could ever imagine. And He has given this message of peace, that we can have peace with our Creator. This is a, a message that we have been made for another much greater world than we could ever imagine. Much greater than any fantasy that we can come up with here. Yet we find ourselves here on earth, don't we? We have yet to experience this new world, except through the eyes of faith, right? Just through the eyes of faith. And while we're still on earth, while we're still on earth, we are to share our faith with others. And we must recognize the third massive result of Christ's work on the cross. At the cross, Jesus provided access to us. This may be the greatest, the greatest result, right? Look at verse 18. For through Him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. <clears throat> Think about it. This is an amazing and fabulous truth. We've been saved. If you're a Christian, you've been saved. And He hasn't taken you to be with Him yet. But He has given you access to Him through the Spirit. Now, I would take this to mean the Holy Spirit. So we have access, we've been given access, direct access to the command room of God, to the throne room of God. In Hebrews 4.14, the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to confession. See, our, our high priest, our great high priest, is seated on the throne of God in heaven. He has entered that heavenly temple, and He is now in the Holy of Holies. He has gone where no... Let me, let me make sure you understand this. He has gone where no sinful man could ever go. He has entered the very throne room of God the Father. And beloved, He has given us access to the throne through Him. Just listen to the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. See, he lived on this earth. He has gone through everything that we've gone through. He understands everything that we could ever, ever understand from a human point of view. He was tempted, according to, to the writer of Hebrews, tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says that we can boldly come into His presence. We can boldly come into His presence in time of need. He has granted access. We have been then granted access by a great high priest who has opened the way to the Father. 
been granted access. Think about this. We've been granted access to the Lord of the world that is to come. Just think of it. This world, this word access is a glorious word. It's used three times in the New Testament. This word has the meaning of granting access such as to a harbor or to a land. But it was used in ancient times for the person who introduced people to the king. This was a person who officially introduced people to the king and he was the gatekeeper. He granted access. To get to the king, you couldn't come in your own strength or on your own name. You had to have this person who came for you, who had the power to give you access through the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been granted access to the throne of God. Beloved, you can't even go see the president if you want. You'd have a hard time seeing your senator if you needed to. Just think about that. But you have been given access to the very throne room of God the Father. Again, this is an amazing truth. We have not been left on our own. We're not alone. We have direct access to the throne of God. Christ has opened the way, and He's done this on a, 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 He's done this through His work on the cross. Here's what here's what's amazing. It's all amazing. But we're sinful. He is holy. We have offended Him. We deserve His wrath. Yet that same God has provided access directly to Him. What a wonderful truth. What a wonderful truth. It has massive, massive implications in your life. All these this reconciliation between man and man and God and man, this peace that we have, the peace that we've been granted, the peace that we can now preach, this access, these were all attained, these were all uh, given to us at the cross. Listen to this quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. The very God whom we have offended has Himself provided the way whereby the offense has been dealt with. His anger, His wrath against sin and the sinner has been satisfied, appeased. He therefore can now thus reconcile man unto himself. Quote. Beloved, if you are in Christ, you have all these. You have reconciliation, you have peace, and you have access. Jesus' death on the cross has produced reconciliation between you and other Christians and between you and your Creator. Jesus' death on the cross has presented peace to you and has given you the message of peace to preach to a lost and dying world. Jesus' death on the cross has provided access to the Father. He's, it's provided access for you to the Father who sits on the throne of God. You've been given this access in the Spirit through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is you. You have this access. Let me end by giving you this quote by Horatio Sonar. He says it much more eloquently than I could ever say it. Had it not been for this, Christ dying, grace, grace and guilt could not have looked each other in the face. God and the sinner could not have come nigh. Righteousness would have, been, would have forbidden reconciliation. Let me say that again. Righteousness would have forbidden reconciliation. And righteousness, we know, is as divine and a real thing as love. Without this exception, it would not have been right for God to receive the sinner, nor safe for the sinner to come. But now mercy and truth have met together. Now grace is righteousness, and righteousness is grace. This satisfies the sinner's conscience by showing him righteous love for the unrighteous and unlovable. It tells him, too, that reconciliation brought about in this way shall never be disturbed, either in this life or that which is to come. It is righteous reconciliation and will stand every test as well as last eternity. The peace of conscience thus secured will be trial-proof 
sickness proof, deathbed proof, and judgment proof. End quote. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for what you've done, what you've accomplished in sending your Son, the Lord Jesus, to die on a cross. You made him to be Bid it to but that he became sin and suffered your wrath for sin. Oh, that is foolishness to the unbeliever. It's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. Father, I pray for those who here sitting today don't know. Pray that they would trust in your finished work. Pray that they would trust in the blood of Christ. Father, for those who know you, I pray, Lord, that they would understand that they've been given reconciliation. They would understand that they can lay down the weapons of war, the fleshly weapons of war, that is, and take up the spiritual Father, I pray that we wouldn't go our, the rest of our lives like the second lieutenant who didn't know the war. And we would understand that we've been reconciled to you and to our fellow, and that we would understand the peace that comes with us, and that we would preach this gospel of peace, and we would understand the direct access that we've been given, that we've been granted, sinful people, granted access to you through your Son. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would come to understand more and more the massive implications this has on our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.